From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. Threats, accusations, demands, the standoff at the Russia-Ukraine border is at the boiling point. Moscow now has handed over to the United States a list of demands that, if implemented, would radically revise European security, giving Russia a veto on NATO's actions in Eastern Europe. In this episode of Kennan X, Redefining Red Lines in Europe. In most reporting and discussion about the Biden-Putin video conference, the focus has been on really the military confrontation, Russia's massing troops on the Ukrainian border, and on the West steps to avert a Russian invasion of Ukraine. But there's another result of that meeting that's not getting as much attention, and that is an agreement to hold a broader, high-level dialogue with Russia on European security and on reviving the Minsk Accords. That's a peace plan for a conflict in the Donbass region, which is currently dead in the water. And that's what I want to zero in on. So the first person I thought of to help understand this was Ambassador John Teft. He is the former ambassador to Russia, to Ukraine, Georgia, and Lithuania. So it's really a unique perspective. He knows the neighborhood. And I've had the privilege of talking with Ambassador Teft both in Moscow and in Washington. And thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador, for joining our podcast and welcome. Thanks, Jill. I'm glad to be with you again today. All right. Well, let me dispense with the first question, which seems to be obvious, at least on a lot of the media. It's really kind of the elephant in the room. And that is the idea that Putin wants this dialogue. So is Biden caving into Putin's demands? How do you answer that? Yeah, I don't think President Biden is caving into any demands. I think as I read the results of his secure Zoom conference last week, to the extent they were made public, I think Biden was trying to both reassert America's longstanding position vis-a-vis Ukraine and also European security, but at the same time to explore with and to get that message through to Putin himself directly, because there's a lot of questions, as you know, about how information gets into Putin during this COVID pandemic when he's in this little tight pod. But I think also to try to explore what areas there might be to find a solution to what has up till now been an insoluble problem. How do you deal with keeping Ukraine a sovereign, independent nation when Russia basically wants, through the Minsk agreements, to undercut its very sovereignty? and its control over part of its own country. And I think this is one of the great conundrums that we've had to face over the years. Obviously, the Normandy Group discussions have not produced the results that people had hoped. Putin is frustrated. He's built up his forces. And the West has responded in many ways. And as President Biden said, is ready to go further should Putin try to use force again against the sovereign nation of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Putin has really been demanding for a very long time, a larger discussion about European security. And I was reading, I think it was today, 
a statement by the Russian foreign ministry, and here's the way they define what he wants. A clear international legal agreement that can preclude NATO's further eastward advance and the deployment of weapons in Ukraine and neighboring states that would threaten Russia. Now, President Putin has to know that that is something that the United States and NATO will never agree to. There's not going to be, at least from what I understand, any written agreement guaranteeing that. So why is he asking it and demanding, and why is he doing it right now? Oh, they're all excellent questions. I think that Putin has gotten frustrated. He has seen his efforts in Ukraine to try to control and dominate that country, going back all the way, I would say, even to the 2004 and five period during the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, he's seen those come to naught. He has invaded and taken Crimea. He has fomented a destabilizing war inside the Donbass. And yet, he has not changed the mindset of the Ukrainian people or its political leaders. What you've ended up with, if anything, is growing anger. I read today an article that said there's no place that's more anti-Russia in the world today than Ukraine. <laughs> there's over 13,000 people have been killed in the fighting in the Donbass. Many of those are Ukrainian soldiers, and lots of Ukrainian families have been touched by this. So I think the rhetoric that comes out of Moscow, Putin's view, which Dmitry Trenin of the Carnegie organization, the Carnegie Moscow office, said it was based on myths, wrote a tremendous article back in October about this. People just don't believe in that in Ukraine. So you end up with this kind of logjam. You have no way of bridging or have a very difficult time bridging these gaps that exist between Russia and Ukraine, let alone between the larger sense of European security, the differences between NATO and Russia. I would just add one other point, Jill, and that is that we got to remember that when Putin invaded Crimea in 2014, there was a substantial amount of European security documents in place, whether it was the Budapest Memorandum, which guaranteed Ukraine security when they gave up nuclear weapons back in 1992, or the conventional forces in Europe agreement, by his invasion of Crimea, he, in effect, tore up all of those agreements. So what he's saying today is he wants a new security agreement. And I agree with you. I don't see NATO ever giving into this because NATO, European Union, are all still trying to build a European security regime, which will allow greater freedom for everyone, including the Eastern partners who are associate members in some cases, but not full members of the European Union. And the same really goes for NATO. Yeah, and I want to get into that a little bit. But I asked you why Putin is doing that at this point, demanding. Why did Biden agree to these talks that are taking place? I think they understood at the White House, and this is just my assessment, nobody's told me this, that the idea that they came into power with, that you could somehow put Russia in a box, even as you focused on the emerging security threat of China and all of its different aspects, that wasn't going to work. And I think, frankly, part of Putin's approach here has been to say with this military buildup and other actions, Joe Biden, you can't do this. I'm a great power, and by God, you have to deal with me. So this is partly to get attention, and I think they've understood that now at the White House. Doesn't mean that China still isn't the greatest threat or perceived as the greatest threat in Joe Biden's White House, but they have understood that they've got to deal with Putin, who is 
pushing hard to be resolved. Now, I think there's a couple of other factors on timing, and that is that Putin sees this as a moment when you've got a change in the German government. You've got deep divisions inside of the European Union between the Eastern and Western members. You've got what he perceives as a political chaos inside America with all of our polarization and division. He's got higher oil prices at this point. So from his standpoint, if you're tallying up all of the different strategic pluses and minuses, it looks like a good time to push hard. And his main technique of doing this, as he's done in the past, is to build up military forces and threaten his neighbors. Or in some cases, as we saw in Georgia and in Crimea, to invade and take land from his neighbors. This is Putin's modus vivendi. And anyway, I think the Biden administration understands this. I read this morning in one of the commentaries on Russian policy that Putin really wants a face-to-face meeting with President Biden next year. So that may be part of this, too, all of which is to show people, by God, I'm still powerful and you can't ignore me. The talks are expected to include major members of NATO, but not the more recent members, Bucharest 9, as they're called, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Czech Republic, Hungary, and Slovakia, if I have my numbers correct here. Mm -hmm. Now, they're worried that the bigger members of NATO and the United States will decide this over their heads. So do you think that that is a legitimate concern? I understand completely where the Bucharest Nine are coming from. I served in Lithuania, and I stay in touch with friends in a number of those countries. I think that the Biden administration understands this. That's why you had last week, after the initial phone calls to Germany, France, Britain, and Italy, the next day he talked to President Zelensky of Ukraine, President Biden did, and then he had a phone call with the leaders of those nine countries. I think they get it. I think the administration is trying very hard to keep everyone engaged on this, to try to make this as much consensual as possible. And everybody understands that America is going to be the leader on this. I think it's also a fact that Putin, I think he's despaired he's ever going to be able to get some real progress in the Normandy group discussions with Germany and France. And he's really putting all his marbles on the United States. Now, I could make a case that going back even to 2014, I arrived in Moscow six months after the invasion of Crimea, even back then. Putin, his mindset is very much, let's do a deal with America. Let's impose a settlement. Now, I don't think that would be successful even if we tried, not just because the allies would object, but in the end, trying to go over the heads of the Ukrainian people isn't going to work as some term it a Yalta II kind of agreement. Those days are gone. And that's another one of the myths that I think Russia under President Putin continue to embrace. It's just not going to work. So the challenge with the Biden administration is to stay in touch with all of these people, to do what we've done for 70 years with a NATO treaty to try to get all of the allies working together. And it's going to be hard. And Putin knows this because, of course, he's the only person who makes decisions on his side. And we have to try to build these consensual agreements within our NATO alliance, which is much bigger and more diverse than ever before. But American administrations have done this before. Going back, I would argue, well into the 70s and 80s, the famous INF treaty negotiations. America can be a leader, but it has to spend a lot of time and work very hard at keeping all of the allies together, focused, and united in terms of our policy. 
Mm-hmm. This event that's taking place right now, namely the top U.S. State Department official for Europe, that's Assistant Secretary of State Karen Donfried, is traveling to Ukraine and to Russia. And again, this may be old news by the time we end up putting this live, our podcast, but then she's going to come back to Brussels to discuss everything that she discussed in Kiev and in Moscow. What do you expect from her trip? What is she trying to do? I suspect this is Karen's first trip as the assistant secretary. She has a lot of experience working on Europe. She was the head of the German Marshall Fund before taking this position in the administration. I think she's going to be trying to get a good feel personally for the positions of Ukraine and in Moscow. And I see that Deputy Foreign Minister Ryabkov has said he's going to lay out all of these demands that Russia has, and some you mentioned earlier before. And then she's going to go back and stop in Brussels and debrief them on her talks and try, I'm sure, to start building a consensus for whatever the next round is. I don't expect her to make any final decisions. I think this is going to be as much a listening and questioning period, and then she'll take it back here to Washington, and the next steps will be put together at the most senior levels with the president and the senior advisors in the National Security Council. On these talks, I think of them as two questions. One is the big European security question, and then there's the Minsk agreements, that peace plan that now has apparently hit a dead end. The United States is accusing Russia of not carrying it out, but President Putin says, of course, Ukraine is derailing the agreements. Is it fair? Is it correct to say that both Russia and Ukraine are at fault here? And should the U.S. press Ukraine to implement those supports? I don't think so. I think the biggest violation here is the failure to agree on some of the key security provisions in the Minsk II agreement. You'll remember, Jill, that that was signed right after I got to Moscow in 2014, after the fighting in Devaltsev and some of the other areas. I went back as I was preparing for this podcast and looked at a piece that I've gone back to time and again recently. It's a piece on Chatham House's website by a guy named Duncan Allen. It's the best single analysis of this very complicated and contradictory Minsk II agreement. And he points out there's nine parts of this. I think it's a 13-part plan. Nine parts of this are all about getting ceasefires and stabilizing the situation in Donbass. But four of them are about fundamental political deals. And that revolves around a new status law that President Poroshenko agreed to at that time, which has never been realized. Now, I would argue, as many other analysts have, there was never a chance that this was going to go through, because basically what it wants is not only substantial autonomy for the Donbass, beyond, I think, what any Ukrainian government could agree, especially five, six years now after the original agreement, But it also demands, in effect, a say for these people in Donbass and a veto right inside the Ukrainian government. Mm -hmm. It also would require an agreement that Ukraine would never become part of any Western security organization. Now, I thought at the time, and I still think, that that was a bridge way too far. It was never going to be achieved. There were lots of discussions with France and Germany, Russia and Ukraine, to try to sort through this. And I was a party to some of the talks that now Undersecretary of State Toria Newland 
had with Vladislav Surkov, President Putin's representative back in the end of the Obama administration. Kurt Volker continued these during the early Trump administration, and they got into a lot of detail about how you would actually implement these. But at the end of the day with Toria, Russia just said, no, we're not going ahead. I think they decided they were going to wait and see what would come out of the election and then move from there. But then nothing really moved at all when Kurt tried again with Surkov many times to try to find a way forward here to look at the very details of this to see if there was some compromise. So I take that as a confirmation, sadly, that this agreement, which is the only basis on which to negotiate, and that's why everybody sticks to it, but that this agreement really has fundamental contradictions in it that, given the political realities, are going to be next to impossible to achieve. Then that leads perfectly into another question, which is there's some observers who think that Putin is demanding these talks with no realistic expectation that they will amount to anything. And then he will say, well, I tried to solve this by negotiations, but I failed. So I guess we have to invade. Now, that's putting it pretty baldly. But do you think that that actually could be what he's trying to do here? That's one of any number of possibilities. There's lots of analysis out there about what Putin's real motives are. And of course, nobody really knows because he doesn't even tell some of his closest associates some of these (laughs) key decisions, at least in my experience. Angela Stent, the wonderful historian and political (laughs) scientist at Georgetown, had a piece, an interview with NPR the other day. And she said Putin's fundamental goals are twofold. One, he has this idea that Russia should be a great power again. And what that means is the restoration of the Russian empire to a certain extent, not precisely the way it was in Tsarist or Soviet times, but that control over the areas, the neighbors around him. And this is rooted in this long Russian fear that pervades Putin's thinking, as well as many of his key aides, that Russia needs this defense in depth, that needs all of this territory and control to be able to protect itself. Well, I would argue, and I know this has been an issue between the American and Russian negotiators for decades now, that with modern technology, that isn't going to protect Russia much more than anything else. The speed with which missiles can impact in other countries is so great. And the difference between a missile fired, let's say, from a West European country, from an East European country is not that great. And I'm not sure that technically Russia could stop it. So I think that's one of Putin's focuses. He still believes in the idea of defense in depth. And the other one is that he demands control over these neighboring countries. We've seen this play out in Georgia. We've seen what's been going on, sadly, in Belarus for the last couple of years, and of course in Ukraine. And what he's done is he's met substantial opposition. As one of my Ukrainian friends tells me all the time, the one success Putin has had in Ukraine is he's made more Ukrainians anti-Russian than any other Russian leader has ever done. And I haven't been in Ukraine because of COVID for some time, but my friends there tell me that, if anything, this buildup of military forces has only just exacerbated that issue. Hmm. Well, then I'm going to ask you the last question, which is almost the first question that everybody's asking. Are you, maybe this word doesn't apply, optimistic or pessimistic about actually having a conflict? I mean, do you really feel that this could be the moment that President Putin decides to invade? 
I'm hopeful, is what I guess I would say, that sensible people will prevail. I was on a web conference last week with several Russian experts whose judgment I trust, and both of them said that if Putin had wanted to invade, he wouldn't have done it like this. He would have done it like he did in 2014. It would have been covert, quick, unannounced surprise. They interpreted his current approach to one of building pressure one on the Ukrainian government, two on Europe, three on the United States and NATO for all of the different things we've talked about. And I think nobody knows what Putin is actually going to do, but the cost of doing this domestically would be substantial, not just the sanctions that President Biden has talked about, including taking Russia out of the SWIFT interbanking system, as well as sanctions on a variety of other entities like Rosneft and Gazprom, things like that. But the impact that this will have on the Russian population, polls in Russia show that while taking Crimea was very popular, given the historical ties, the Donbass conflict has never been very popular. This is what my Russian friend said. It's hard to imagine how people would rally around a conflict that would undoubtedly be very bloody, which would bring back lots of Russian casualties. How to see this would be successful? And even more, the impact that the economy will have on ordinary Russians. The figure that one of them used was a decline in standard of living by 10.6% mm. in Russia since 2013. Now, it would be substantially more than that. And I know that Russia has a very repressive regime and has been fighting the opposition, but Putin also has worked hard to try to build and sustain legitimacy among, if you will, the working and middle class to a certain extent. Would that stand up in the face of a Russian invasion that caused a lot of casualties and that caused Russia large economic losses? Anyway, if I had to guess today, I'd say we will work through this diplomatic side of things. And I don't know what Putin will do, but I certainly hope that he will think sensibly about this and take another approach. I don't have too much hope that he will change his mind. For your listeners, Jill, I would just close with the recommendation, not just to go back and look at Duncan Allen's piece on the Minsk agreements. It's very clear and easily understandable. But go back and read the October or I think it may be September, a piece on the Carnegie Russia website, how Russia could recalibrate relations with Ukraine by Dmitry Trenin. Mm. It lays out a very clear way for how Russia could become a neighbor and not an antagonist, not an enemy of modern Ukraine. There's others who have written about that, but that one particular article, I think, lays out another possibility. And I can't imagine that there aren't other Russians who are thinking about this if Dmitry has seen it and also wrote about it so eloquently. Yeah, well, thank you for those suggestions. And thank you very much, Ambassador John Teft, for your insight into this. It's really complicated. And as you said, nobody quite knows what is in the mind of President Putin about this, but it's very dangerous. So thank you for joining us. And let's hope that you're right, that cooler heads will prevail, as they say. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jill. I'm a Midwesterner by birth, so I'm a born optimist. So I've <laughs> got to keep that going. Thanks. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., it's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former Librarian of Congress, 
and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.